Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, speaking to chickadees. Melting down concrete. And you shall not pass. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. Is it possible to melt down concrete, Andrew? I don't know the physics <laughs> behind it, but no. it's, and as we said just a minute ago, it's an evocative expression. So if you're wondering, like, I didn't think you could melt down concrete. Well, you probably can't. You can't, maybe, but it's an image, and you'll find out what it means to our amazing guest from today, Emily Olson. She's about to put on her second annual conference, which we we talked about the first one, but we wanted to make sure to give a shout out to the second iteration of the event, which is happening on Friday, October 4th, if you're on Vancouver Island or you want to... You, after hearing Emily today, you're just like, I don't care where I am. I'm going to come to the Connection Project Part 2. It's in Sydney, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, and it's on Friday, October 4th at the Mary Winspear Centre. Tickets will be available soon, and it's going to be an incredible event. We're, it's not confirmed yet that we're going to be there with the podcast, but, but it's... But we will. No, just between <laughs> you and everybody. It's looking likely. We're coming. That we'll be there. So, yeah, yeah there's going to be six speakers all about connection and the power that it holds. So, as you'll hear from Emily, it's going to be going deep and it's it's going to change people's lives. Fact, so, I abandoned yeah. you last week. You abandoned me, yeah, at the microphone. <laughs> Which, John, I didn't even tell him I was leaving. John no. showed up for the normal to record. recording time. Yeah, I did. And he was just hanging out by himself, and he doesn't know how to use the equipment, so he couldn't actually make anything. No. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm sorry. That episode will be coming out in a few weeks (laughs) of me just being like, no, is it the green? Is that a good thing? (laughs) Is it this knob? Yeah. yeah. So last week, escaped into Strathcona Park, which is the biggest park on Vancouver Island, one of the biggest in Western Canada, and got out into the wilderness for... um, a number of nights and yeah it was a it was a bit of an adventure it was so a lot of people don't know this but Della Falls D-E-L-L-A Della mm-hmm. is on the island and it's the tallest waterfall in Canada what? yeah how did I not know this? You, did you not actually no. know this? no okay. I have no idea <laughs> there's a waterfall it's the tallest in, in, in Canada This and this is north right? so this is like Campbell River north so uh, you know my so directions <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you to drive there. Just by Port Renfrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The park's so big that it it goes from like Port Alberni is like the southernmost part and then Campbell River, which is like a two and a half hour drive from Port Alberni. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That And the whole thing is Strathcona Park, basically. Oh, okay. So it's, it's okay. enormous. Yeah. And we, in fact, did go in through the southern part yeah. into Port Alberni and then we drove about an hour further north on logging roads. And got to Great Central Lake, which is a, a beautifully creative name. And we put our, we found a little wreck site, a little wreck camping spot in the middle of nowhere. We yeah. were driving down roads. We had some like kind of haphazard directions. Did you have service on your phones? No. Yeah. So, but we we've gotten a blog post that had it had directions that were actually it turned out to be pretty good. But it's like start your uh, kilometer counter now, and then at about kilometer 9.9 make sure you take the left turn not the wow. right turn I'm like, okay that's cool and yeah so we went off into the middle of the woods saw a bear just on the way like 
oh, there's a bear. Um, wow. And then found a cool little wreck site, and that's where we stayed the first night, and then put our boats, our ki- kayaks in the water on the start of day two. And so day two, we were planning on just going across Great Central Lake, which, as you might imagine from the name, it's fairly large. Mm-hmm. And the lake itself is like 35 kilometers long. And we, by getting to this little wreck site, we shaved some of that off. So we had about a 25-kilometer paddle. And to avoid any wind, or hopefully avoid wind, we started early. We woke up around 5 a.m. and we had everything packed in the in the axe and we're on the water by 7. Beautiful conditions. It was like the sun was coming up above the mountains. It was shining across the lake. There were some like little wispy clouds that burned off and, and just gorgeous paddling, perfect paddling conditions across this lake. But still took about, by the time we got where we thought we were going, it was about five hours. Yeah, I was going to ask, for our guests who have never kayaked, they hear 25 kilometers. Is that like a moderate? Is that an extreme? Is that like a... It's fairly it's fairly extreme, but it was lake. And if you're doing ocean kayaking, 25 kilometers is crazy because you're talking about yeah, tides and, and stuff, currents yeah. and wind can get really bad really fast. And the whales will often... The whales, they'll yeah. just eat, swallow they you whole. They will. Yeah, yeah, it happens a lot. Ask, Kill- ask Jonah. Killer whales, right? Right. Yeah. That's because they're known to just devour kayakers. They are, yeah. Yeah. So, but luckily, the um, there's no lake whales in this particular lake. No, thankfully. Yeah. And so, 25 kilometers is like it's it's pretty heavy duty, but it's it's not crazy because the conditions were good. But still, five five hours or so, and then it took a bit of time to find the trailhead because it was ridiculously poorly marked, and it's basically just a dock that if you're looking. Two kilometers across a lake, it's hard to see a dock when, yeah. there's, when there's no signage. <laughs> that was it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so found the trailhead. And the original plan was to camp there for the night mm-hmm. because fairly long paddle. We didn't know how long it was going to be. But then we heard on the way uh, from somebody in the campground, they're like, yeah, trailhead campground, kind of nasty. Really buggy. Like the only place to escape the bugs is on that yeah. shanty little dock, which was actually covered in dead fish. So and when you say bugs, you're talking about insects, not like people listening in on your conversations, right? Correct. Yeah, not surveillance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Glad but, I figured that out. I'm yeah. sure listeners would have been like, oh, yeah, it doesn't sound very private at all. I bet. <laughs> so <laughs> we decided to move, continue on, put yeah. our kayaks there on the bottom part of the kayak rack, which was a good choice. I'm skipping ahead to the end of the story here. If we had have put our kayaks on the top part which was occupied by two canoes actually Mm. um one of the canoes we when we returned was completely destroyed because a tree fell onto the kayak no wow we're like what is going on here because the canoe was like completely dented and and wrecked and so there was like tree remnants everywhere and then kind of looked around but at first we're like what is happening because and our kayaks were covered in debris but just so happened, like if there hadn't have been yeah. the, those, there were two canoes and I think one of them was hopefully okay because it was gone, but the other one was probably left and abandoned. But if we had been on the top, then our kayaks would have been, would have been destroyed. And what would you do in that case? Honestly, what are your just, options? Just, you give up. Besides you crying. Crying, cry for fetal help. position. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe send some smoke signals. No, there's, there is a boat. Most sane people don't kayak across the lake or canoe across the lake because you're at danger of a like not making it or getting exhausted or b 
your canoe gets destroyed by a fallen tree. Yeah. So most people hire a water taxi uh, and okay. it, water taxi is kind of a, a loose word. There's no like con- continuous taxi. They hire a boat okay. that does shuttle people from one end to the other if you call them and if they're available. Makes sense. So yeah, a lot of people do that to get to the access of Della Falls Trailhead. So we got there about noon and it had been beautiful conditions as I said. We were uh, take, we're in good time. We're like, yeah, we got some energy. We don't want to stay at stay at Buggy Trailhead with all our surveillance equipment, and <laughs> let's keep, let's start hiking. Yeah. And then we're like, oh, it's starting to sprinkle a little bit. And oh, okay, it's, it's nice hiking in a light rain. Yeah, people we, love that. There was literally zero clouds on on the way across the lake, and Sarah made the mistake of saying, "It's gonna be sunny all afternoon." <laughs> Those are her words. And that she, is so Sarah, though. Yeah. Well, she's an optimist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and it was wonderful. It was we were excited, and so it started to sprinkle a little bit, and then, so the the hike from the trailhead to Della Falls is about seventeen kilometers. Wow. To where we wanted to get to, and A- after five hours of paddling. Yeah, but we weren't planning on doing that whole thing because no. that's that would be kind of torturous. Yeah. Um, but that's about how long the trail was. And then there was a spot, a couple spots to camp at like 8, 10, 8, 8K and 10K along. But that part was fairly smooth. And then after that, about the 8K part, then you start going up. Because there's, in total, um, like 700 meters of elevation change between the trailhead. Well, you know, a fair, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not 23,000 like Stacy's, but it's yeah. still pretty good. <laughs> it's true. That was feet. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I'm, ta- I'm taking away from your story. Sorry, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's still intense. Yeah. It's it's fairly intense when you add in the distance onto it. Yeah, and and a forty pound pack because you got right. you got to bring all your stuff. Good in, point. Yeah, okay. which became an integral part of the story. The fact that we had all of our gear that was meant to keep us alive, we had that on our packs. Yeah. So we started off, started to sprinkle a little bit. About an hour into the hike, started to rain. Seriously, mm-hmm. rain. Yeah. And then it turned from serious rain into torrential rain, and and we're like, wow, we're getting we're we're really wet. Yeah. And this is why neither my phone nor camera survived the trip. No. Even though I had pack cover on my pack, it didn't extend to some of the pockets on the sides. Those pockets got soaked, much like everything else on my person. And my phone never turned on again. And the camera, it was kind of on its last legs anyways, but it got completely waterlogged. See, when you told me just that one detail, and that's all I've heard about this whole trip, folks, I assumed that they just fell in the lake. <laughs> yeah. Like when you're like, oh, they didn't make it out. In fact, in fact, Andrew first said Sarah didn't make it out either, but that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> I missed the emoji in the beginning. And I was like, what? <laughs> but yeah, he was kidding. But that was from the rain. Wow, yeah. That must have been some serious rain. It was some serious rain. And then this was like... This isn't just strolling down through Beacon Hill Park here. People. No, this no. is like your. It, it wasn't a super well maintained trail, and so there was thick, thick brush yeah. that we're getting through, and then it got soaked, and then it's covered in water, right. and then it all becomes part of you. And I've never experienced anything like this. My hiking boots uh, were actually leaking out water with every step. <laughs> And these are waterproof hiking boots. Yeah. I was wa- wearing a waterproof jacket. It was wow. useless. It this the stuff. And I actually went and talked to a guy about the gear after we got back. And he's like, "Yeah, man, like it's designed to. There's an actual like amount of millimeters of of rain that it can withstand. 
and that's about an hour of hard hard rain if you're out in it and we were out in it so we have a rule of camp of backpacking because we've done a fair amount of stuff like this before like sure you're probably listening and be like well his phone and camera got wrecked like he has no idea what he's doing we've done a number of hiking <laughs> okay, backcountry <guys>. adventures <laughs> and and yeah so we have a fairly decent idea of what we're doing but we've never been in conditions like this but the one rule we have when there's some rain is we don't want to set up camp in the rain right because yeah. as soon as you start pulling your stuff out of your out of your backpack soaked, yeah. everything gets wet yeah. and you really don't want a wet sleeping bag or wet no. tent no so we're we got to the the part at 8k and it was just thundering down rain and we're like okay well we think there's another camp let's just let's keep moving it's it was probably around 4:30 at that point we'd been going since 7 a.m and like going pretty hard so what were your moods like like honestly were you guys happy still or there's a there's a term that i've used uh and it's fighting to be positive i've said that a couple times okay. and th- because when you're outside in the pouring rain for hours on end like it's hard to stay positive yeah. but yeah it, as soon as you lose your yeah lose your mood as soon as you start getting negative everything gets worse yeah. and then like honestly that's when injuries injuries would happen mm-hmm. um that m- makes it miserable and we were we were like singing songs we were just like <laughs> trying to get each other up there was also a lot of bears in the area so we were singing songs to make sure bears weren't surprised by us and <laughs> yeah we were we were doing the best we possibly could to maintain positivity <laughs> and uh... yeah so we we kept marching along we got to the 10k spot there was no bathroom there there was no bear cache there we're like okay this is not ideal we're we're pretty exhausted at this point um and there was a cable car pass there because over a river there's a cable car that you have to pull yourself across with your hands wow that sounds like fun actually it it maybe not at that moment though (laughs) it can be there's some there's a bunch on the west coast trail that are i don't know how they're so much better designed but they're a lot easier to do this one was like yeah probably 70 meters across and really hard pulling Mm. and for some reason i put my pack on the seat and was basically like standing in a crouch pulling us across because sarah was facing the opposite way because there's no these are small little boxes oh i thought she was mad at you by then no (laughs) not yet okay Uh, but yeah so it was we ended up continuing on past that campsite because it was still raining hard there's no bear cache. It, there's no bathroom. Kept on trucking. Pulled our tired, sore asses across that cable car. And then hiked the remaining 6K into Della Falls in one day. Where it merc- mercifully stopped raining at about 8 o'clock at night when we arrived. Oh. And by the very end, <laughs> our moods had finally... <laughs> taking a bit of a beating that's when my shoes were so waterlogged they were squishing water out oh man uh we were just beaten down yeah. with exhaustion uh we got in there at, yeah at about eight o'clock so it, we'd been exerting ourselves at nearly max capacity from 7 a.m to 8 p.m and you had hiked the whole 25 kilometers paddled 25k and then hiked 16 wow. 17 to the final trailhead my which gosh. was at the base of Della falls it was like literally where where we got our water to eat and, and yeah. drink and, you know, 
things you use water for. Yeah. Which I'm you, you. you might be familiar. Yeah. Uh, that was at the bottom of the base of the tallest waterfall in Canada. So spectacular spot. Um, our nearest neighbor was a bear at the, at the end, as we were hiking in, um, Sarah had just like, she was still in pretty good spirits and then was like, Oh, look, a little mouse. And I just like kind of turned around and like sneered <laughs> and, and was like pretty fed up. Wow. And <laughs> that was what threw you off the edge. A mouse. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't care about any fucking mice. I just want to get to our camp spot. Okay. And then my reaction soured her. Uh, why <laughs> yeah for some reason yeah and and then i saw then there was a bear like right off the trail and i was like cool like there's a bear right there and he was just like digging into a stump like i guess probably like looking for grubs that again the stump is probably like melting away because of all the fucking rain rain yeah so <laughs> which also made starting a fire to dry out all our gear really difficult um <laughs> So, so so hiking folks, you should try it. Yeah, no, that's the moral it's of the story. A highly highly recommended adventure, <laughs> Della Falls. But uh, yeah, it was that was maybe the hardest outdoor day I've ever done in my life. Yeah. But the rest of the of the time spent was quite enjoyable. Not that it, that was even enjoyable. Looking back, it's like yeah, that was a pretty cool thing we did. Um, we we got through it. We survived. It was a fun adventure looking back, but it was tough and. Uh, you know, there's a reason that we have comforts of our modern society. Yeah. But it's, it is kind of nice to push yourself at times and and see some of the most incredible things. The, the only way to get to that waterfall is literally right. by taking that trail in. Um, and you can get there by whatever boat you want because there's no roads that, that get you there. It's just crossing the lake. You know, it's so funny. This is another unintended moral by a intro. We didn't even know what it was going to be like, but... Um, I mean, you just basically summarized almost every one of our guest stories in order to get to the beauty at the end. They got to go through a bunch of crap in the early on in their life, right? And this is, this is a theme that that came out definitely in this episode. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, you're going to hear it. And in fact, we did something a little different with this episode, folks. And for our keen listeners who have who've binged every episode, you might notice that we always start with a snapshot of today. And we see kind of, you know, sort of the bright spot and where they're where they're finding success. And then we go back in time. Well, today we change it around, folks. You're going to notice we start um, with Emily at the beginning of her life. And then we end up with um, with um, events that have just happened in the last few months of where yeah. she's at today. And and it was cool. I was I was at first it was a little bit. Oh, I wonder how this is going to go. Mm-hmm. But I think specifically for Emily's story, it was the right move. Yeah. And and as you know now, she is putting on conferences and and leading change in in the field of mental health and oh, yeah. uh, and she's been through so much. You'll hear it in the story. It's it it's stunning. Some of the stuff that happened in her formative years and and the challenges that she went through and and the fact that she is in the place now to really make a difference in the lives of others and impress upon the public the importance of connection and 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 yeah it'll be great to be a part of that conference we're, we're going to be there one way or another for sure in october and um yeah i, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode and uh probably connect with it yeah it was super deep and, and um andrew thanks for sharing your story man <laughs> yeah glad to be back in civilization yeah man i missed you last week so i'm glad you made it back and you've dried off mostly yeah 
I don't know about the boots, though. Have all the rashes gone away? (laughs) It was intense, but... uh, It is the obstacle course, and you made it back. Yeah, keep pushing through those obstacles, everybody. There's light at the end. So, Emily Olson... Mm-hmm. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you on and uh, and a referral from a previous guest, which we always love. Um, Linda Hunter. Shout out to Linda, a friend of the podcast for sure, and, and uh, someone who's dear to our hearts and, and we're really grateful to to have had on. Yeah, thank you, Linda. We uh, we much appreciate this um, this connection. And I, this was probably one of the first guests that we got to meet the children. That's right. <laughs> at the same time as we met the guests. Yeah. So Emily and I chatted for a little bit in um, in the busiest Starbucks in Victoria <laughs> with just shit parking. I mean, it was probably the worst <laughs> choice I could have made. Let's meet at the uh, new Starbucks in Mayfair. There's like no parking anywhere around there. And there's like five seats. So it was a, it was a bad decision on my point. And then uh, she also had her kids with her, <laughs> which yeah. I didn't realize. But thank- thankfully, we we're connected to a, a bookstore, so they could That's at right. least go. But you had them. You had you. You were on point because you were. You had them in ten minute shifts, <laughs> where she'd just be like, "We're gonna talk for like 30, 40 minutes," and you would just say to the kids, "Okay, kids, um, ten minutes." They had like a little watch or something, and you're like, "No, just, wow. just oh, did awareness." They count? Was no, it awareness? They just, yeah, they just have good. a really yeah, good they they look do. at the sun. They're really or? tuned in. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it was on point. They'd go away for 10 minutes and come back just quietly. And they'd be like, it's been 10 minutes, mother. You know, it's like, okay, go for another 10 minutes. <laughs> wow. Amazing kids. That amazing is, and so Did you cute. take them for some sort of training for that? or <laughs> They've had they... a lot of training. My yeah. my husband's a politician, so they've gone to a lot of meetings. Oh, okay. Sat in a lot of boardrooms, even as like little babies. So hmm. they know. They just, they just make it work wherever they are. They can amuse themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Without, dare I say, without video games? What? Yes. What? They, don't get me wrong. My, my, they they enjoy playing Super Mario Brothers and, well, yeah, and Pokemon and things like that. Yeah. But but they're good. Yeah. My son ended up reading this book called Scaredy Squirrel to to my daughter. And, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's actually a pretty good book. I, I should yeah send one your way. It's, oh, yeah, it, you should. Put it in the show, show notes. notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're the most professional kids I've met, though. So yeah, they're so they're good. Cool. Their camp was canceled at the last minute. And I'm like, well, this is life. You just you just make it work. Yeah, and, you did. Yeah. How do you know Linda Hunter? Okay, so um, in, gosh, was it a year ago? Yeah, a year ago, um, I was asked to go speak uh, as one of three people at a during Mental Health Week. So it was, I guess, May of 2018 at a uh, event at the Mary Winspear, just basically talking about it and trying to create awareness and she was an event planner and I met her and um I I got up on stage never done anything never talked openly about any of this stuff before and just launched right into it it just felt right and she came up to me after and we became immediate friends and she uh, later expressed to me anything that um you know I do she'll support around you know mental health and so you know just to shoot forward to now she's actually helping me with the connection project this year Hmm. Um, but we'll we'll get to that later so just met her last May and it was just instant connection Hmm. yeah she's a lovely human being she is and it's amazing how natural connections 
do not take long. No. <laughs> when when I I like to think that it's when values are aligned, which mm. like those core values, when when they just kind of flow, um, that's when real important deep connection happens. And and sometimes it takes you know a fifteen minute conversation. You're like, wow, this person and I just are in sync. And up and other people, you can spend years working beside. And you just never have as intimate a connection yeah. as you do with somebody who, who really fits with you in 15 minutes. Absolutely. It's bizarre. Yeah. But amazing. Mm. So in terms of mental health, I think that's going to be one of the the core topics of conversation mm-hmm. for today. And uh, it's, it's all such an important one. And it's something that in our society is much more in the forefront and is, is a safer to speak about and and um, and I think that's a really positive thing that's mm-hmm. that's happening, um, but it, it's one that still it brings up a lot of anguish and, and pain to to um, to go into. So thank you for for being brave enough to share when you did a year ago and, and again today. So um, do you want to begin by taking taking us back into uh, your first experiences with? mental health challenges Hmm. okay wow so I guess my first memory of anything being a bit off uh, I guess it could be eight nine or ten it's kind of vague you know childhood has a way to (laughs) sort of mess with your memory Um, and I remember I wanted you know I was getting up to go to school one day and I just didn't feel quite right and you know, I said to my mom, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sick. I, I can't go to school, which was very rare for me. And it was the, the strangest feeling because I don't know, you know, what it came from. But I just remember this feeling of my body would start to experience this very bizarre feeling of like feeling like it was made of cement I don't know if that makes any sense to you but Mm -hmm. so take my my palm that would be one section the next section would be from my wrist to my elbow okay and so it was extremely painful and I felt like every single muscle in my body was tensed up and I, I didn't necessarily have any thoughts other than well fear right it's like being trapped, I guess. Hmm. And the sensation was, if I move, like I'm going to crumble and die, essentially, right? That was hmm. the feeling and the experience that I had at that age. And I don't think I articulated it to my mom, but she knew enough about just the energetic way I was talking to her that she said, okay, just stay home and I remember the couch I was sitting on and the pattern on the cushions and that it itself was not a very soft couch. So I was afraid to like accidentally knock my arm or my leg on it because that would make that section of my body shatter. So it was pretty much like a crippling life or death situation. Um, And that came and went. That came and went. Uh, But I would say just in general... uh, I was very much caught inside my my mind my whole life. <laughs> um, yeah, I, w- I was going to say my first reaction to that is 
the level of self-awareness mm. and self-reflection as an eight-year-old. Um, like I would think, you know, me as an eight-year-old or a lot of eight-year-olds I know, they would just be like, oh, I'm sick. And then they would just turn on Barney or whatever show was on at that time and mm. just kind of forget about it. But you were already engaged with what does this mean? Like, mm -hmm, what is this? Mm -hmm. Which probably maybe added to the heaviness you were describing. Well, and I've always been uh, very uh, much a thinker. Right. Um, there was an incident that happened when I was about, I would say, four years old. That's going back even further. And, and I think it's important to share this. I've yeah. shared this with people before. And it was kind of where it sort of set the stage for my life up until, you know, a year ago. So um, uh, my mom and dad and then me and my two younger sisters, or two older sisters, sorry, um, were outside one day and my dad said, oh, a friend of mine uh, has a plane and he is going to take us for a plane ride which one of you would like to go? And my oldest sister put her hand up immediately and I remember hesitating and ah, oh, right? And he said, okay. So he went to take her and and then I guess, his, I, I can't remember the exact details, but his friend said something like, oh, well, we can actually fit too. And my sister started crying, the middle sister. So the oldest sister's in, then the middle sister starts crying and oh oh you should go you should go right they thought immediately because she started crying she should go and I had this immediate just moment that was so pivotal in my life and I was like I'm not going to show any emotion I don't need this I don't want this it doesn't matter but I really wanted to go but some part of me was like speaking up was very hard for me speaking up was very hard for me I was a very quiet kid and um I kind of pulled back and pretended it didn't affect me and I was devastated I was heartbroken and so my dad went with my my two sisters and I was, I was kind of mad at my second sister because I thought eh, she just cried and got her way and I made up a story and I fully judged her in that moment right <laughs> yeah. um I was like who needs you and then I was like well you know everything's ruined now um and I wrote a piece um a little short piece of writing about a year ago and I wrote about this and as I wrote it I noticed in that moment my mom said to me we get to have a really special day today and we did have a special day but that's not what stuck. Mm. The messaging of you're not good enough to go in that plane was what I picked out of that experience as a four or five year old. And I decided that that would be what would carry me through and that I didn't need it. I'm not good enough. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter. And I just, some part of me just shut down that day. And that's really early on in life, right? And so I ended up like sucking my thumb till I was like 12 and twirling my hair. And I just went inward and I stayed there for a really, really, really long time. And now after writing that and being hard on myself about that situation for all these years, because it's such a silly little thing, right? Just a silly little story. Um, but I damaged myself with it and for whatever reason, it, it just stuck with me. So when I wrote about it, I noticed that why did I choose 
the unworthiness part over I got to have a really great day with my mom and then I remembered after writing it oh yeah they came home and my oldest sister puked everywhere in the plane and ended up being a super <laughs> shitty time right <laughs> Wow! and uh, they had wow. a bad experience and it was awful and I thought oh, I'm kind of glad I didn't get puked on and like in hindsight it's pretty funny that I spent a lifetime with a story and I missed out on being able to laugh about that and also the time with my mom. But the realization when I wrote that piece of writing was that's just what I chose. Like that is what is. Yeah. And that's what I chose. And that determined a whole lot of pathways in my life going forward. And I think that could be, I'm kind of having a realization right now, that could be why the cement feeling, it was like, just eat it, just swallow it, just hide it. You're not good enough. You're a piece of crap. You don't deserve anything good. But that was my choice. No one inflicted that on me. So that was, that was kind of a, you know, tough pill to swallow after all those years. But in that, I decided, why would I now perpetrate that further into my life and just go, okay you know what, that was a story you chose for yourself. And now that you have the awareness of it, maybe it's time for some forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Who would that so. forgiveness go to? Oh, to myself. Yeah. yeah. And a little bit to my sisters. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's such a strange choice to, to make at such a young age that, and then to hold on to that's so debilitating. I, I like to think that often when we make unconscious choices for ourselves, there's a, a positive intention in there somewhere for us. Um, and I wonder if, if there may have been a positive intention mm. for that, that just got turned sideways or, or, or why your mind and, and your personality would have chosen that. I think I didn't want to be vulnerable in that moment because I always, since probably the minute I was born, just really loved my parents. Like, I love them so much. I'm so grateful for my life. And I, I just didn't want to appear, I guess, in that moment, like, weak or that I needed, had a need. I didn't want to be a burden. And I think when you're in larger families or you, you grow up and, you know, we didn't have money, we were quite poor. And, and I, I really felt everything that went on, you know, the struggles that my parents had to make life work. And, you know, I did have a younger brother at that time, because if I was four or five, he would have been at least one. And I could feel those, mm -hmm. not burdens, but like challenges, I guess, that when you when you're in struggle and I and I took those things on which to me is such a gift now so I think, yeah i think you you said at the beginning of the story that um you know I, I don't think you used this word but you described almost feeling a resent towards your sister who cried to get her way you know what i mean like she was vulnerable and showed her emotion and that was something you didn't want to do mm -hmm. so that must have added to this feeling of like oh i don't like you know i don't want to be like that you know good catch yeah you're right absolutely and and so then but then you began to feel the effects of 
I, you know, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to show anything. And it just begins to become this weight, literally this heaviness. Yeah. Um, as you get older. Yeah. And just you know, ho- holding everything in. Yeah. It, it seemed like that. That's, yeah. that's what exhausting. you learned. And it's interesting. Mm-hmm. There's so many memories flooding back right now. I think part of talking about this, there's some release a bit. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lot of joy in my life as well. And so, you know, the balance of it um, was, I think, the struggle for me. And I always used to say, oh, it's because I'm a Gemini. (laughs) I'm two people. (laughs) Um, But I think it was the disconnect between, I think that's where the disconnection happened for me, was between my heart and my, my mind. And I, those were so separated for so long. So two things that showed up very early in life uh, passions that I had was one running and one swimming Mm -hmm. and not even swimming for competitive reasons or anything like that but the silence of being underwater was so peaceful for me and I've written some poetry and things like that that I've just kept personal for me at this point but I kind of mentally go there sometimes in meditation I kind of go Mm -hmm. to that place of Oh, peace and calm a quietness right because it's not the the crazy mind but it's the uh the peace the connection to my heart and with running honestly I, I think that was my meditation as as a young girl I did lots of cross country and it was just such a joy for me and whenever I think of running my brain immediately starts going what and mm-hmm. I go one two three in one two three mm-hmm. out and that you know, repetitive um, sound. Yeah, yeah, for me. And I actually say it out loud in my mind. And for me, there was such joy there. And there was such joy in my life in terms of experience and people. And, you know, uh, I had a very, very rich upbringing. Uh, But there was this this other part of me that that existed too. And and so there was shame and secrecy, I guess there which once I hit the teens then it was not a not a good situation (laughs) I'm curious in terms of that that richness and and um, joy and that you experienced or that that was around you in the in your childhood and upbringing and into the adolescence but you also had that that pain and the withholding were you able to experience both sides like did you did you feel that joy uh as much as you felt the the unpleasantness or the 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 darkness oh wow i think whenever i was in a physical activity which i was in a lot that was my reprieve from old faithful you know sadness Mm -hmm. and it was deep sadness and i felt it very very young to the point where like world events, right, would deeply, deeply affect me. Mm-hmm. And so I knew very young at 10, there's a moment where I lay on the school field. I was, my dad was a teacher at the school and I was waiting for him to be done work. And then we were going to walk home together and I lay on the field and I was just lying there and the clouds in New Zealand where I grew up are something else. And I remember lying there and saying, I want, I want to do, 
good work in this life. I want to do good work for the world. And almost in a question, how is that? How may I do that? Now, funny thing is, you don't always put stuff out to the universe like that anymore. <laughs> you can no. beware what you wish for. But yeah. uh, there was that moment, and I and I refer back to it a lot. Um, and I and I think that was kind of like, okay, well, you ask this question, and we're gonna we as in the universe, God, mm-hmm. whatever source, we're gonna give you an opportunity to. Uh, do things in a way that touches people and connects them to themselves but first we're going to teach you even if we as myself who knows whatever you want to call it uh we're going to teach you the opposite Hmm. and we're going to show you other sides we're going to show you what's what's not the fun stuff and not in a punishing or self-abusive way. Maybe, actually, maybe. I don't know, right? That's a that's an interesting way to look at it now. But when I was doing tactile things, gardening, um, sports, play, we fished a lot. Like in New Zealand, or actually in, you know, you guys are quite a bit younger than me, but there wasn't a lot of screen. There was no screens. There was, you know, maybe a tiny bit of TV, but very much out fishing, like eels, kayaking, you name it. We were outside all the time until, you know, come home for dinner kind of thing. So when I was in that space, it was really easy to just exist and be, although I was introspective in those times, it wasn't a a darkness for me then. It was whenever there was, you know, time or, or space to, to have, um, thinking time mm-hmm. that was when it was hurtful and I was running these stories of how I fit in and where I where I was within my family and it was interesting because I had two older sisters and two younger brothers for the first 12 years of my life I was the annoying little sister right to the two older girls not all the time but that was that was a message I created for myself and then I'd get shafted with my brothers, although I loved hanging out with my brothers too. It was a different kind of fun, right? Um, so I just felt very middle child, yeah, <laughs> right? Very, yeah. And that's a story too for a lot of people, I think. Uh, and that's... I felt the word invisible is a word that was mm. true for me. Again, solidifying the the belief that I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. So, yeah, I just kept choosing that. I, for whatever reason, I kept choosing that. You know, um, when you said the swimming and the running, literally a phrase flashed through my mind, and it was, of course. And the reason why is because as you were describing, like, this heaviness you felt, like, where if you were to just, like, put down your arm, it would crumble. Like, what's a better sport than weightlessness of swimming? Mm, yeah. And I wonder if it just, I mean, almost provided some sort of relief, both psychologically and physically. I'm not sure I was curious about that. And then also the running, for me, it's we've had num- numerous guests that have shared about how running was like, freed their soul. I mean, yeah. and, and a lot of them had experienced an emotional trauma and running in the woods, uh, many guests have brought up running, um, even myself and Andrew's um, big into running. I think it just provides this release for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, that, that totally rang true with me mm. for sure. So as you approached your adolescence, I, I understand that that's when the, the challenges really became on the forefront and they were no longer 
possible to kind of be kept within and um, if you're willing if you could begin to elaborate on how how that took took effect and how that came to be and, and what happened next yeah so we had already been in Canada for about a year when um, my family moved to a place called Bella Bella which is on the west coast of BC um, well we didn't actually move to Bella Bella there's a small town nearby called Shearwater which was an old war post and it became like a fishing lodge shipyard sort of fix your boat if anything happens while you're on the coast whether it's travel or or fishing and um very very small island about i don't know maybe 75 people like in the winter and then uh, quite a few more in in the in the summer with um you know uh, tourists and things like that yeah but but very remote still very remote yeah bella bella's out there it's yeah you weren't even in, in bella bella no um, so there was a sea bus that we could go across on. Um, and the first year there was pretty magical. Like I get connected to nature and, and animals and people really, really quickly. I just, I've always loved the natural world. So we moved up there and within a year started making really incredible uh, friendships there, um, both in Bella Bella and, and Shearwater. Uh but the isolation was was something else. So that first year was a lot of fun. Um, we were able to, you know, be witnesses to some really amazing cultural activities over in Bella Bella, and um, I sort of our family sort of adopted um, a guy from over there who who was a teenager as well, and he kind of became our unofficially adopted brother. He had his own family as well, but that was kind of a, a, a term of, um, you know, endearment or whatever, like a, a thing, oh, we've adopted you and he's adopted us. Um, but there is actually an official process to do that um, as well um, in terms of uh, a witness kind of ceremony, like at a potlatch or something. And um, he became uh, this new brother of mine sort of my spiritual match I guess you would say and within a year my my parents kind of realized okay uh, instead of like going on a, bo- a boat every day to go to the school they were you know they put us in um, because there was only a one-room schoolhouse like grade one to seven that my dad taught in but there was nothing for teenagers so myself and my two older sisters did um, distance learning so correspondence so you do an you do an assignment you put it in the mail you put a stamp on it you send (laughs) it away you get it back right so and I was doing grade eight they were doing nine and eleven or nine and ten or whatever it was so after one year my parents decided oh we're going to send your two older sisters into Vancouver to stay with my grandparents and go to school in Coquitlam and um, I knew and they knew that I wasn't ready to go. But what I didn't know was how much that would affect me. It was like severed limbs, honestly. Mm. That was just, it just broke my heart. Mm -hmm. Um, We'd moved a lot as kids and so they were constants, right? They were my best friends and you know, we're only three years apart, so 
you know, 18 months between the older and then three, three years to, to the oldest. So we did everything together. And so I fell into a massive depression and the rain up there in the winter is unforgiving and it is nonstop and you are forced into yourself. And what I found was pretty ugly. I, I just, you know, all that stuff just came back and I just fell into this thing of one day, like everything that was good was outside of me and I couldn't find a way to get to it. And I felt pretty trapped on this island and and obviously you're a teenager so you've got all your hormones and every breakup is a is a heartache and everything hurts twice as much and I pretty much uh just started fantasizing about killing myself then that that's when it really started and how old were you so that's 14, 14, 15. Hmm. Now, throw in some trauma into that. Um, yeah, it really messes with you. I had a bad Me Too experience um, hmm. after my sisters left. And just the situation of it made it so that uh, I was afraid to tell anybody. Well, that's what I do. I don't talk. I go inward again, right? And I wrote them a letter and I did tell them. And it just, I don't know, it, it didn't really help because they weren't there. They couldn't be there for me. And so I was kind of left to my own devices and it was extremely difficult to... Uh, sort myself out that year and then I started falling into these really weird patterns of like okay so I got to do my correspondence by myself I got to focus I've got to do my English I got to do my science you know my parents would leave the house and it was up to me to to get her get her done and this is something I actually haven't ever told anybody but like you said when I first met you people just tell me stuff <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, up in the co up on the coast the television there is literally like cbc north that's the station you get and um <laughs> yeah so there's soaps in the day and then around five it's fresh prince of bel-air and yeah. then and then yeah. it goes into like cbc programming and um beachcombers i remember that show <laughs> <laughs> littlest hobo <laughs> but i could not focus on my school to no, save no. my life and so i i it made it appear and i would just get the bare minimum done and then I watched this show called One Life to Live. And, uh, is that a soap opera? It is a soap opera. Okay, okay. And so this was my big secret, right? Yeah. And there was a woman in the soap opera, and she got raped. Hmm. And it was the same time that it had happened to me. And I actually had lost my virginity to rape, which was even more like messes with you. Like just mm -hmm. absolutely just, mm -hmm. it's very confusing. Let's just say that. And so I went into this fantasy world and I just pretended that that was my family and I watched it every day and I felt it like it was real. And so it was my big secret. And then I like I would that would be what would keep me going, if that makes any sense, even though it was super, super dysfunctional. And then I started writing more and more. 
And writing actually seemed to help, but it was very, I've gone back and read some of it. It's very desperate, very sad, very lonely. And so I just continued to uh, sort out, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to kill myself? And uh, it just was like this lingering thought that just stuck with me a lot. Um, Somehow made it through and that one year, somehow, and I actually went out the back of the property into the woods and got all my schoolwork and burned it and just thought, no one will know. (laughs) (laughs) No one will know. So uh, I never did it. I never did that grade. Did did anyone know? It came to the surface (laughs) later. Okay. But that was another secret that I kept. Oh, lots of secrets. I have a question about um, you breaking your own rule a little bit about uh, and writing that letter that you mentioned earlier. Who, who was that letter to? It was to my sisters. About the about the rape? Yeah. And I'm curious about the response, or was there a response? It was an awful response, actually. Uh, they told their guardians, and then, and then it's so weird, because I'm like, trying to protect people's privacy while I say this story. It got back to my parents, needless to say, and they were a little more than disappointed that I didn't go to them. And which made it even harder. But I, (laughs) I actually, because it was a, how would I explain this? It was a planned event and it wasn't just myself. It was also another friend. Um, I kept the secret about me, even to my friend, so that uh, we could prosecute the other person. Mm-hmm. And so I even lied to the police. There I said it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I even lied to the police. So they interviewed me and I concocted this big story because I was so afraid of like repercussions. Like what would this mean for my life? I should have known better. I could have navigated that differently, blah, blah, blah. So it's just compiling, compiling, compiling ugh, all this stuff, right? And I couldn't process it. So I did what I did to protect myself from myself because it was too overwhelming. Yet, uh, you know, I guess I didn't really because I was still having these feelings of just, I'll, I'll just kill myself and everybody will be better off, right? And it's funny, even when, as I say that now, and even though I'm remembering those thoughts and feelings uh, underneath it, I knew it wasn't true still there was a part of me that it it was still no I'm not going to do that but the thoughts are so exhausting and tiring and it's it's Mm. it it really just clouds your experience in life and and then adding that isolation into it which which you've spoken about I, I just I'm I keep coming back to where your identity or sense of self must have been in that moment in that time and could you elaborate on on what that identity may have looked like in in those times oh man i really didn't have a sense of self uh in the external world but in my understanding of my relationship with my purpose like why i'm here 
I, I still felt very deeply there's work that I'm supposed to do while I'm here. So I did see a future for myself, but it, it didn't match everything that was going on. So it was very difficult. And I came across probably as very desperate. I'd cling on to things. I'd, you know, give of myself very easily, have no real kind of boundaries around uh, friendships or relationships and because of the situation with you know losing my virginity in the way that I did I was like well that's pretty much toast right and there was so much shame around it um, for me and so uh, I don't know it was just desperate and then so that was one year and then I moved to the city did the same things as my sisters came to Victoria and that's where good old drugs and alcohol uh, showed up. <laughs> Help provide a bit of relief. Is or, that is that what? Oh the, yeah. Or d- disconnect. Yeah, from, disconnect from reality. Both, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So within basically six months of moving down, I attempted suicide. <sighs> Hugely because. Um, I was away from my parents and some part of that didn't feel right. Some part of me was angry that they would even send me away. Like, why would you, you know, why would you create a situation where your 15 year old is having to go out in the big wide world without their parents? Right. I mean, I had guardians and they were incredible. Um, but you kind of don't have that same sense of like, okay, I need to uphold uh, some integrity in my life and be responsible to my parents and be um, be present in my life and, and represent myself well in the world and do good things. And I just absolutely let loose. I, I would I'd do anything, right? And uh, one of the unfortunate things that I latched onto was uh, when I would drink, it was like, I'm all in. Like, I'm not just going to have a drink. Like, mm-hmm. I'm all in. I'm going to go hard. And I would just get ridiculously drunk. But throw in marijuana, and it was like, oh, my goodness. It really just uh, messes with your perception of things. And before I knew it, you know, within, it might have actually been less than six months, I uh, I just remember getting so enraged one night and not knowing how to, I couldn't push it down anymore. My, like my emotions. And I just remember, I remember after the fact at the time, I didn't remember it, but I grabbed a uh, beer bottle and just broke it on the closest thing and just slashed my wrist. Mm. And I don't actually recall anything that happened after that. And I don't know what went down to this day, to be honest with you. I just remember my guardians the next morning and my my wrist was wrapped. I don't even know where I went. And they said, you need to phone your parents and tell them what you did. And I still remember that phone call. And I think I kind of broke their hearts a little bit too, right? And then having done that, 
it was like something was good about it in a weird way and and another part of it was just so sad Mm. so sad now that I'm a mom it's even sadder right but um, I know that so much of that was affected by the drugs and alcohol and it might have been different had I not done those things right so but maybe there was more truthfulness to it maybe that act was like actually you're really hurting is, is that what you would call the good part then yeah 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 it was just maybe i told you i should have had a tissue <laughs> <laughs> we, we can take a pause and no i'm and good yeah okay. i'm good i've yeah so in terms of the attempted suicide being kind of the most like you you actually showed the world the pain that you were experiencing is, is what is my understanding of kind of how that was one of the more truthful things that that had been expressed mm. what was what was the reaction to that and um and what happened for you in, in your story that followed i was um forced to go talk to a counselor at some place on the western communities and i did that and i don't actually remember what happened there other than i was able to manipulate the situation to my benefit which i i know i was very good at to appear like i'm fine this was just a momentary you know alcohol induced whatever right and he was like yeah you seem pretty good and well adjusted and i think i got out of doing that after just one session because clearly I didn't want to be in that room Um, but also I really wanted to protect this new thing that I had uh, been able to do which was freedom right there was some freedom in being away from my parents so the flip side of it was like there's some control I get to have of my life on top of just going inward now I get to have a little more freedom with time to express who I am like figure out who I am um and uh yeah then kept doing drugs and when I when I when I went home I don't think my parents actually knew why I made the decision to actually go home and it was a hard decision uh it just it was like it's not quite right yet or something so I went home for for six months so I, I survived six months went back and then went went down permanently. And that's when I really sort of let loose and got my license and freedom and got a job. And I always had really good grades in school. And so I got a lot of freedom and um, then my parents split up. So <laughs> it was just like, ah, this, all this messiness sort of happened uh, at this time, right in the, the years when I was, I guess when most people start figuring out who am I and this was like 15, 16, 16, 17. Yeah. Yeah. So those years. So yeah. Formidable. Yeah. And, um, you know, that I, I think I just managed for a while, managed for a while. And then, um, you know, graduated and then just the, the depression really took over then. It was just like, couldn't quite get any zest going it was yeah that was tricky my family moved down to Victoria we all ended up here after my parents split and 
you know, maintaining, maintaining relationships after your parents split with both your parents because you love them dearly. That's also tricky. And um, anyway, I actually started becoming what would appear as very responsible. You know, I was very independent, always had my own money, did my own thing. And um, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but I feel like I should kind of skip ahead to um, I did a year of acting school and then decided I'm going to go to Vancouver. I'm going to make a go of this and did so and uh, went to Vancouver and it's really interesting um, uh, that was hard for me too because then I was away from my family again and it kind of made me realize I really love these people I'm very attached to them even in all the things that go on and the interesting relationships I I really yearn to be around them I just I absolutely love my family to this day and um so it was really hard to kind of break free but I knew I needed to to experience that and do that and uh there was an episode of um Oprah one day and they were she was just starting to kind of tap into this whole thing around you know mental health stuff I don't even think it was called that I think it was depression or something I don't remember the episode And I was kind of listening while I was doing some house cleaning or whatever. And um, she mentioned, if, you know, if, if you're struggling, why would you not reach out and ask for help? And in that moment, because obviously Oprah's amazing and she's such a lovely human being, I really respected that. And so I actually phoned my doctor in Victoria and I said, look, I'm really having a rough time and it's pretty dark and <laughs> I'd love to come back and maybe meet with you or whatever. And Would you be in your early 20s at this point? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. 21 or 2. Okay. Yeah. 22. And... Um, I went to my doctor and, you know, probably still new for him. He said, well, yeah, there's this new drug called, and I'm going to name it because it's a freaking beast. And I, I'm good now, but <laughs> man, like if it was a person, I'd give it what for. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Paxil. Yeah. And um, I went on that. And within two weeks, I was like, oh, what a difference. I can live. I can breathe. I can see the world around me. And this is amazing my goodness I've got this new lease on life and I was like go get her go get her and um you know I was auditioning and doing all kinds of things that were passion related and feeling really good and independent and I was working at a um at a restaurant in Vancouver and um got a ride home with uh, my boss's friend one night and uh then uh out of nowhere seemingly uh, and at 21 or 22, whatever 2001 is, that would be uh, 23 years old. Just not even really paying attention and suddenly he's in the house and and then he rapes me. And it was like, oh, okay, here we are again. Wow. <laughs> It was just like my entire life stopped. Mm. And a big part of it that was difficult uh, was 
because I, I had this association, well, if I'm 23, like I'm not 14 anymore, this is different. There were signs all along the way. And I opened my door and I this and I that. And, you know, I did the full uh, go to the hospital and the police and the, the rape kit and all of that. And But what also went down that was really messed up was uh, I was being questioned by the police. And this one cop was like younger and very cocky, definitely something to prove. And I was so tired because I'd done a full early morning shift at work birds are chirping the sun's coming up and they're still and I'm like I'm done I can't go on anymore like really accusational questions and like why are you so thin like because the Paxil made me very thin why are you so thin like what what's wrong with you are you doing drugs and I was like straight edge at this point I had stopped everything I had not a sip of alcohol and um we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I was like, I, I'm dropping this. Like, I can't even, they're like, if you don't go on your, this, this case is over. Like you can't press charges if you don't finish the statement or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I, I, I kept falling asleep in the, in the interview room. And, uh, when, when the police officer drove me home, he kept on and he like cranked the music and like, the radio station's going really loud. And I remember thinking, this is the most awful way to treat a human being after this kind of a thing. Anyway, but the beauty of reporting it to the police made made it so there was a case and made it so that I had the ability to go to, I immediately just jumped right into uh, counseling, group counseling that was near my, my work at Chapters Indigo. <laughs> which is where me where we met last week which is mm-hmm. ironic yeah, yeah and I started going and I was I was given you know the ability to go to counseling and, and deal with this trauma and blah 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 so I had a case and all of that anyway so I had a question yeah uh, or a statement question which <laughs> sometimes I do um, about the police right unfortunately and sort of mind-bogglingly this scent tends to be a common narrative when when talked about with sexual assault hmm that the police are kind of like, you know, skeptical and and not really plugged in and, and not seeming to want, want to, I guess there can't be sides, but not wanting to understand fully what happened. Why do you think this is a problem? Like, why does this happen? Um, well, I know why. And I just think because the conversations have not happened. So we haven't really investigated our own relationships to those situations. That person... I mean, he was, he was kind of a jerk. Like, let's just be real. So separate of that, he maybe doesn't have any of that life experience. We as a society have not been through, let's say, some of the conversations that happened with the Me Too movement, like actually considering what those power struggles look like and what the nature of them are and how that looks and, and who plays into it and, and and what is a contributing factor and um, having done the uh, the actual work on it, I'm I'm in a really good place with it, with myself, um, and so that side of it is very lessened. But I just think that, especially then, before these conversations have come out with all that Harvey Weinstein stuff and all the 
Trump comments and all that, um, that, that we've not had an opportunity to have those discussions even with ourselves, mm-hmm. right? The actual truth. And there's some truths in there separate of what went down that are like, no, actually the truth is this is what went down. These are the things that happened. But it's not separate of the act itself being uh, what it was. Like the act itself was mm-hmm. rape. Yes, it was a it was a hard no, and <laughs> like it was a hard no. Yeah. Uh, and there's all kinds of really difficult factors when you actually go into those things. Like, and, and it's tricky because when when you go into your 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 fight or flight or freeze mode. That can be interpreted in all kinds of ways by, uh, you know, the person that's in it. So, um, gosh, that's such a, yeah, that's a, that's a whole topic for a whole other podcast, maybe. Um, it's a very interesting one. Um, and I think those conversations need to happen. I think we're in a better place with it now uh, to explore and actually get honest with ourselves but it's like but did it make you feel in the moment like hmm, maybe maybe it was my fault oh 100 like, percent. oh yeah I, that's wait what a I second was. maybe yeah. maybe i did bring this on myself like yeah. oh, the, yeah. these terrible lies that pressure just from yeah. that questioning yeah it's i take your point about the conversations yeah, it is. We're not at a point in our in our culture where those conversations are as free as they need to be, for many yeah. reasons. Yeah. But yeah, with the Me Too movement and so much of the that, in my understanding, which is just my understanding, and it's pretty limited, but it's balancing of those power dynamics, which is beginning to happen, and what you witnessed of victim blaming type conversations or or accusations or severe questioning may have been partially due to a a lack of power balance in in Mm. the gender dynamic that has been a it's been a long process and it's it's starting to flatten it seems hopefully in, in at least progressive communities and society Mm. but um it's it is needing to be talked about more and and um and hopefully that's becoming our new reality so as you spoke about the counseling and and the treatment that was beginning and and then it's still uh quite a long time between that treatment beginning and and the work that you're doing now and, and speaking one year ago so if you could just touch on kind of what what took place between those times and i'm I'm sure there was a lot but uh any any kind of formative steps in going from a place of uh, isolation and and deep trauma to one where you are now an advocate and and an organizer for change in Mm. in this realm so the next part is the most beautiful part because what happened after that is I was sort of uh, stripped down to the 
to the bare bones and it was kind of like the beginning of my rock bottom and essentially what happened combined with what I now believe was um, the effects of Paxil this antidepressant combined with the trauma of that what actually happened within the next couple months was uh, my body kind of started just shutting down and my mind took over very rapidly and I like I was working at chapters at the time and I literally just remember hiding in the aisles hmm. and um, I started hallucinating uh, very quickly after that incident happened and it was like something that felt very external to me like we, you know when you hear people talk about like I was hearing voices it was literally I was hearing voices and they were really violent and so it would be like sharp objects I would just fixate on them and it was like really these very strong surges of emotion that would um turn into like okay you need to jump in front of that bus or you need to get that pair of scissors and just like stab it into your stomach like it was awful because I had a separation from it but I'm like but it's still happening and so it really scared me and it wouldn't stop and it was like night and day night and day and I I think I lasted about a week (laughs) I always take a while to get things to click in (laughs) and I was like I just basically said to my boss "I, I think I need to go back to Victoria for a week I need to take a week off like right now and he's like okay so I went to Victoria and got there and then realized I don't know what I'm supposed to do so I stayed with my mom and uh, she she was living with my sister at the time and and my sister just had a a young boy and she had a daughter and a a son and and my my nephew was about one and a half or two and literally that's all I could do was like relate to a one and a half year old and I would just like play on the ground and like sleep and I just was so afraid or unaware or unable or I just didn't have the capacity to be like look I am this is what's going on for me Mm -hmm. and my sister who's just 18 months older than me picked up on it and she said to me do you think we should maybe go see someone and I was so grateful to her for that she just yeah she picked up on it which made it so I didn't have to say anything kind of so they took me to at the time Royal Jubilee Hospital Eric Martin and uh, my doctor actually met me there which was probably one of the most beautiful things another person has done like Mm -hmm. middle of the night just showed up and he was wearing his famous orange Crocs and um, he uh, (laughs) so I'm like sobbing through my you know I'm leaning down I'm like you know when you're all messed up you're just like fetal position most of the time and I just I remember looking at the floor because I didn't want to make eye contact with anyone and I could see his Crocs and I looked up and I was just so taken aback that he would take time out of his life and it was like okay something is happening here and I gave him a big hug and then just got this really big sense of like surrender Hmm. and the next two weeks I basically hung out in Eric Martin and you know like those horrible orange pajama thingies and tried not to drink the the orange juice because they said it was (laughs) spiked with something (laughs) everyone in there warned me and I had this weird two weeks of just like sleeping 
and being in a space where it was like, I literally cannot go any further, like in a downward direction, like I'm here. And I just kind of let go, let go of worrying about rent or money or family or what I was going to do with my life. I just like, okay, this is where I'm at. That was a very weird experience. Yeah, I wanted to go back a little bit to the to those voices that yeah, you were talking yeah. about, those terrifying voices. Mm-hmm. You know, jam something on your in your leg or jump in front of a bus. These oppressive, you know, dare say demonic voices. Um, you shared a bit of that when we grabbed coffee, and then I shared a little thing, and you were like, you know, you need to share that. And so I thought I'll, I'll share a few minutes of it because I do have a question, and okay. I think. It might take us down a path that's worth exploring. Okay. Um, so when I lost my faith, um, uh, you know, real quick, 30-year history, I was raised conservative Christian. I was going to be a minister. I was for many years. Uh, I, I was very certain in what I believed. And then over a process of a couple of years, I completely lost my faith. And and, and I'll never forget the moment it happened because it, it basically was me in the middle of the night having these horrible nightmares uh, and panic attacks which I didn't understand and as part of my experience I was having dreams where uh, um, it was like a voice was telling me just just and I could feel it like it was I was I was living it like I could visualize almost you know holding a gun and just in in shooting myself in the head and and it was so weird because for me it wasn't a desire I did not want to do that like I wasn't mm. wanting to kill myself but it was like somebody was was saying you need like just just get it done like you need to do this and and um it was terrifying I didn't know what to, I didn't even sh- I haven't shared that with hardly anybody I think maybe Angie um just because I still don't quite know what it what it meant so when you shared that I was like hey that's that's you know I, I'm sure it wasn't quite the same thing, but for me it was a it was a deeply spiritual thing going on. I was losing perhaps my identity, perhaps it was an egoic thing. Um, I'm not sure what it was. I still don't know, but I know that you know, whether we're theists or atheists, there is a spiritual component to life on Earth, um, and and for me I think it was a spiritual issue. And so the question I had for you was. Do you feel like spirituality played a role in some of your journey? And um, what did that look like? Ooh, 100%. And for me, it was finding what spirituality looks like. And when I moved away from essentially the knowing of my inner being and my spiritual self, my spirit self, my soul when I moved away from that by doing certain things in my life, that is when these things showed up. And I do want to get back to what you said. Thank you for sharing that. Um, But it does feel like a separate entity. Mm -hmm. So when we are separate, when I am separate from my true self, that's when the stuff shows up. Mm -hmm. So for me, the word connection is really incredible. Uh, It, it makes so many things make sense for me. So when I was doing the drugs and alcohol, it was my, I believe my soul screaming at me. This is the farthest away from your true self that you are. Mm -hmm. Let's bring you back. Hmm. So it was like this 
this compass, this knowing, this, this beingness that was crying out and it was calling me to, to address the things. And I might be skipping a little bit ahead here, but when I, uh, started going to I was doing this writing course at SFU online the the writer's studio I noticed everything I wrote about was my experience with my mental health and I couldn't get away from it and I was like starting to feel really weird and like the other people in my cohort were like well why is this always the thing that you're writing about and I was like it just keeps coming out of me and I wrote about all of this stuff and um when I heard the comment that Trump made on the bus that got recorded, something in me shifted so big. And I wrote this really horrific poem and I shared it with my husband and he was just like kind of floored and like, he kind of knew my history of, I mean, not kind of, he, he did know my history, but like I hadn't sat down and been like, here's detailed information or this is what it looked like for me. And part of the poem I talked about while I was being abused, it was like, I talked about it feeling like, you know, the the DNA strands, that twisted thing. Mm-hmm. It felt like someone was pouring, here goes that cement again, water and like making mortar. And as it flowed down in my DNA, it like, as the, so mm-hmm. I'm, as I'm getting abused, the top of my head comes off which is interesting if you know anything about chakras and stuff and it's like pouring down into my body Mm. and it's literally going all the way down into that region you know Mm. your sacral your 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 core everything Mm -hmm. and dead Mm. so it was like an understanding like what trump said brought that out in me so that when I wrote that poem it was like okay so now I'm seeing what happened spiritually to me that moment that I lost my virginity that moment that things just changed and so I shared it with my husband and then he's like whoa (laughs) right and I'm sure he was going through his own experience with um, understanding, well, obviously making connections uh, with being married to somebody who's got this stuff residing within them. Because you know, I don't. Um, the body remembers. It's a it's a book, but it's also a truth. Mm-hmm. The body remembers, right? Mm-hmm. And I just kind of had this moment of like, okay, I got to deal with this. I've got, I have got to deal with this now in this life right now because it is not serving me. So my spirituality was showing me something, okay? And so a friend of a friend referred me to uh, this amazing therapist in Victoria that does uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And essentially what it does is it interrupts and I'm probably not going to get it completely accurate here, but it interrupts the relationship and the, the, I guess like the neural pathways that anytime you have a thought of that trauma, you feel it in your body and it's like, it's happening again every single time. So you are immediately back there. And what it does is it sort of interrupts that makes it so that now that's just like a story that runs and you can, and I can go there. And it's so funny. Every time I notice my body, I smile because sorry, Uh, I I smile because having done a year of that work 
at the same time, ironically, as designing the connection project, I don't have a physical relationship to that trauma anymore. So this trauma stuff works so well. I tell everybody about it. And um, when I did that work, I noticed how it was also tied into uh, some of the later thoughts of suicide. I noticed it tied into my physicality. I noticed it tied into my relationships with family and friends. It was all interrelated. So in designing the connection project, which was a calling I had in meditation to get on stage and talk about my mental health experience, basically called me out and said, okay, so you have got all these things that need to be now looked at because you've made the connection that speaking about this um, experience in your life with depression and wanting to kill yourself what else where are all the other misconnections going on in your life so I started um, understanding where I was with my health my what I what I ate how much exercise I was getting what would what did my sleep look like um, dealing with my traumas I had to I had no choice and I wanted to and I was ready and so it's not easy work. I will say that it's not easy work, but it's so rewarding. And if I look at it, it was like one year I was able to deal with my Me Too stuff through this process. But what happened as sort of a side effect was it really healed uh, my fears. It really healed old patterns of of going inward instead of leaning in leaning into whatever was in front of me especially thoughts of suicide mm. and and all of that darkness stuff um it, it called me out to address um the day-to-day -day nature of what my my personal practices are with prayer and where am i spiritually what do i believe who am i you know um where is there like Lack is, is just a way to get you to understand, but where is there something that's not thriving? Hmm. And, you know, I can talk about the Connection Project, but just in general, the process of doing the Connection Project and forcing myself to actually have to gather a community and let these people fall into this project and come and share their stories and have um, the event actually occur that was healing in itself and so I my whole world opened up after I did the connection project and I'm currently working on you know uh, I really want to do a TEDx that's my next calling and it's like I'm gonna my TEDx is basically um, how to heal mental health through through connection and so connection for me means a lot of things and I can get into that later if, if we have time but it was that first initial, oh, the opposite of isolation is connection. So I literally have to go out and, and, and like, I don't know how you make concrete liquefied, but I'm <laughs> sure there's some process. I, I had to do that. So it was difficult work. Nothing broke, nothing shattered, not even my world. It just made it very new and unfamiliar and it, really having to trust in the unknown so my spiritual self showed up for me and it, it like reset itself inside me again 
after mm-hmm. after doing this work. So I was able to reconnect with my true being and all of these things started to make sense. And I just had so much gratitude for the learnings that I got from slitting my wrist, from getting raped, from being depressed. And I know I've still got some residual guilt around absence, like like absence from the present moment in my kids' lives when they were a little bit younger. But I'm so all in now. And um, again, why spend the the rest of the time doing that? But some emotions come up with that. Um, And yeah, uh, yeah, I I could sense you were going to jump in there. Yeah, sorry. There's, There's a piece that I wanted to, there's a lot to dig into there. And one of the parts was the idea that in order to fulfill our purpose or or do the work that we really choose to do and benefit others, we must first kind of be a whole person ourselves is is one of the ways that Jason Dorland, a previous guest, put it. And, um, and, and doing that work, giving yourself that gift of, of becoming whole and, and healing. And it was so impactful for you and you found the tool that you needed to do it. And I just wanted to kind of speak to that and then and spur you on to, to talking about how once having done that work, you were then able to figure out maybe those things that you were lying in the field as a, a 10 year old uh, thinking about and, and it became real. And, uh, and and that first experience that you mentioned of sharing on stage and the connection that was received um, and and the impact that it made for others who who then came to you and, and were vulnerable with you and and it's my understanding that was part of the inspiration behind the connection project and and if that's right um, or wrong or whatever please please share that part of the story and also Emily like I think if if I remember correctly that first speech you gave that Andrew just talked about at the connection project Leading up to that was a pretty dark time, was it not? No, <laughs> pretty dark's an understatement. Yeah, so um, uh, I just want to go back to something really quickly because I think this yeah, is important. Please. When I uh, when I was in Eric Martin, uh, I didn't particularly think it was that, that great. It was just kind of like, okay, go and sleep for two weeks and let's switch your meds. So I went on to Prozac, which has been around forever. And basically it just dulls life, right? So the next um, several years and throughout my the first several years of my marriage, I was on um, Prozac. I came off it when I was um, pregnant and breastfeeding, um, which was really actually not great. <laughs> but it was just like this general like, right Mm -hmm. so um the turning point for me like there's it seems like there's a lot but there was one really really big turning point and uh I came home from work one day and I held a really you know decent job I worked for Canada Post I was a supervisor there for a decade uh I would do a lot of early morning shifts I came home one day and my son said to me I said oh what do you what do you want to do you want to play you want to read a book or whatever and he goes aren't you going to go to to bed? 
And it was just like a knife through the heart. And I felt so awful. It was like this moment of clarity of, oh my goodness, my son knows me so well. A, it's messed up and he's got some kind of responsibility of like taking care of mom. That is not his job. Like he's a little boy. But the other part was, oh, I literally go to sleep to avoid life. Mm. And I think a huge part was, all of this stuff that we've already talked about, but also the drug itself. And I soon realized that there was other parts that I needed to take care of. And I actually um, went uh, to a place on Gabriola Island for a week called The Haven. And I did the Come Alive program, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Just such a great community of people. And I always like plug them. Haven, it's mm-hmm. awesome. Love you guys. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've, uh, heard, I've heard about that place. What, what else? What What is The Haven? Just for our guests who just leaned in a little bit there or for our listeners yeah, who just leaned um, in a bit there. Wow. The best thing I could say about the Haven, it's a place to go to relearn how to breathe. Mm. That is the best honor I can give that place because it's the truth. Mm. All the other stuff is sort of circumstantial, but essentially it's a it's a place where really, really good people come together to do good work with people who are ready to do work on themselves, whether in relationships or or just the program come alive it literally says it's like coming alive again and so what happened with my son prompted me to go okay this has been an offer on the table from friends and family that have said they would send me there when i'm ready and so that moment of being ready and i decided to leave my prozac behind i couldn't flush it down the toilet because you know that's like not good for the environment and things like that but right. metaphorically just slammed it down on the shelf really hard i'm like i'm done i just said i am done i am done which was risky they've come off it before and it was not very good at all but i just decided in that moment this is no longer for me my soul does not want this and i went and i did the week and it stirred a whole bunch of stuff up but i got some tools and I had some moments of clarity that propelled me into a, a journey of uh, really focused, clear self-work that isn't guilt-based. Like, oh, I can't take this time for myself. Oh, I should do this or that or whatever. You know, those old mm-hmm. ways of being that maybe our parents kind of put on us a little bit that I really truly believe our um, generation yeah. needs to break, right? And I think mm-hmm. we are and have in many ways. And I decided, no, actually, this is beneficial. I need to do this work on myself so that I can actually show up for my life, my family, my children. And so that just started this beautiful journey. And I started doing Bikram yoga, which was the first time I actually, especially after doing um, the one of the cobra poses, it gets your heart racing so hard and beating in your chest so hard. And then the, the Savasana where you lie back and, and, and relax for that 30 seconds or whatever between the posture showed me that I had the ability to control my breath. Because every other time in my life, especially with my mental health stuff, it was like I would get like triggered by another person's anxiety or this or that and it would throw me off and then I'd be done for. And that showed me, actually, I can bring myself peace through breath. Mm. 
and I'd been disconnected um, from that for years. So it was that yoga, and then just went on this sort of journey of self-discovery and and doing things that I, I felt called to do. I found a poetry community. I started reading poetry in public. Planet Earth Poetry at Hillside Coffee and Tea on Hillside <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> no, they they were such a great place for me, and I got to to find myself in a place of a purpose again with my writing. I love to write because it allows me to take stuff that's in me that's not going to become cement. It's just going to hmm. move and have flow. So the poetry was poetry and writing for me has been a, a huge healing thing, and. Um, that's where I started off with the connection project. Yeah, it seems like a natural segue into the connection project because that idea of taking things within that can turn into concrete or or just emerge as concrete immediately, as as you've spoken of, um, moving through that by sharing it with others. And that seems to be kind of the essence of the connection project and and so why don't you describe a little bit how the the first iteration went okay and what's to come next all right awesome so uh i was meditating one day and decided i i need to put this on stage somehow and I often get real clarity when I meditate. I had been doing it for about 14 days straight for the first time in my life at this point. So this was February or March of 2018. And I just got this really clear book, the theater. So I sort of opened my eyes, scribbled down on a piece of paper, October 5th. That's just what I wrote down. So did my meditation, did my, my blog or whatever. So I wrote, did meditation, went to bed, got up the next morning, phoned Mary Winspear, and I said, uh, I'd like to book a theater for October 5th. And they said, oh, it's, um, it's taken. And there wasn't even a moment. I said, okay, what about the 6th or the 7th? And they said, actually, both those dates are available. I said, okay, I'll take both of them. And it just threw it on my credit card. <laughs> but didn't know what it was, right? Yeah. And... Yeah then I just said I just need to trust this process it feels very strongly like I need to do this and I didn't have a name for it and I don't know what I'm doing I just know I need to do it and terrified oh my gosh just I could just remember these long nights of like meditating for an hour and going just waiting for in like I use meditation for inspiration and it, honestly it did come and it was like, okay, you should do this, you should do that, um, try this, do poetry, like make it really artsy, you can do some spoken word. And I was going to like tell all these stories. And then I realized I can't do this by myself. I I need to, uh, I need to do something different. Anyway, that Friday I went to Planet Earth Poetry and it, there's an open mic for part of it. And this woman gets on stage, never seen her before in my life, reads this uh, poem called Depression, the movie. And I'm just, my jaw drops. You can hear a pin drop. Everybody's just silent. She's not one of the regulars. This is just like this moment out of nowhere. 
and it, she's like so dark and she does this thing and it's intense it's like and i noticed myself going i wish i had written that mm-hmm. that was exactly me that that part was me that part was me and i was like she is speaking like this girl is like my jam <laughs> and she just blows me out of the water and she gets off stage and if it wasn't for this little moment i don't know if the same thing would have happened she made eye contact with the organizer who like times you it's got to be three minutes get off the stage like the old cane um and uh she just smiled and (laughs) she won't mind if i say this you know some people like when they smile it completely changes what they look like sometimes you look like yeah resting bitch face i know i do sometimes when i'm really (laughs) focused but while she was reading it there was no joy right and then that little moment of smiling was to me like man this is a massive victory for this woman Mm. um that night i go to bed and i'm lying there and i'm just reeling and back when i had facebook on my phone go on social media which is like the most unhealthy thing to do before you go to bed that's a whole (laughs) other part about mental health but yeah absolutely and i and i see this post in this group that i'm a part of which was um this group that these uh, friends of mine had uh Uh, it was called by design so living your life by design and they did all this really good work in different areas of your life business money time like it's just creating your life the way you actually want it as opposed to just going with whatever's happening to you and I guess she had gone to one so she was part of the group and all I see is Elizabeth or maybe I shouldn't say her name but maybe you can yeah I can Elizabeth Hall I love you great it's Elizabeth Hall and it's like I did it I read the poem you guys I'm so happy blah 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 and Uh. I was like and I and I found her and I reached out to her and so as soon as I realized I couldn't do this connection project alone I messaged her and I said mm-hmm. would you get up on stage and read your poem mm-hmm. I I really just want to create space for you to do that because that was so uplifting and so brave and just inspiring and you're speaking for so many people and you're giving permission to others to just be okay with whatever their story is and she said yes, and um, you know we met at the beach, and I found out she was um, training for her black belt, which was about a month after the Connection Project actually aired last year. And she, or whatever happened, aired. Um, she did a bunch of black belt katas. She strung them together in perfect alignment with the audio of her poem which we pre-recorded so she's doing all these movements and they're lining up i don't know if you've watched the documentary uh that i made about the connection project but she's in it and it's just so Mm. powerful live too like her breath like all this stuff and this Mm. and the poem is running and it's hard it's a hardcore poem and like i could just i felt that that needed to be in the room and available to the world and i'm so grateful to her for doing that and she's an incredible writer and she does her you know her own thing and that was the opening and then people just started falling on my lap even the guy who i asked to film it is like we're meeting for coffee and we're i'm like this is kind of what i want to do and this and that and we're trying to figure out are you available and then about halfway through he's like actually i uh i got a story to share too he ended up going on stage and nailing it his was like a TED talk and it was so engaging and funny and tearful and just beautiful. And 
There are so many stories out there like that. So basically the event was this collection of really incredible people who told their mental health journey in paired with maybe some artistic thing that they did. It was just an absolutely incredible event. But the the thing that you had brought up um, about the dark time before. So the thing that showed up before the connection project was all of the fears of like, what does this mean in my world? Right? So I'm like coming out as somebody who has these thoughts and feelings and what does that look like? Where are my responsibilities to myself, my family, my children? The imposter syndrome. Um, and, and the the initial like four-year-old who learned to bottle it all in, right? It's right. like the antithesis of yeah. that learned behavior mm. from, from such a young age. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Ooh. So that really, it really did uh, call into being lots of reflection and inner inner work. Um, so I'm someone that I, I've probably mentioned the word energy a couple times today. I believe that we are all energy. We're in a human experience in a human body, right? But we are energy. Mm-hmm. We are a soul and. Um, I believe stepping into that work was aligning with my own core energy and my own being. Um, whether it's circumstantial or there's stories or whatever, but I, I had actually, my, my physical and spiritual energy had been through those experiences. So I actually did have something worthwhile to share, I felt. Um, but it was so unscripted and new and terrifying. Um, and early into the process of designing the project, I'll bring up your sound uh, doppelganger, um, <laughs> Trevor Deneen. I was listening to the radio show Now or Never on CBC. And him and Ifi Chuitalu have this great show and they just do all this incredible work. And um, he spoke about his uh, own stuff. And... Um, that episode's available to the public, so it's not like I'm I'm speaking about uh, unknown information in the world. But it, I felt so loved by a person I'd never met in my life. In that moment, it was like he was giving me the go ahead, like mm. trust that this is the right thing to do. So the energy of him doing that show that day, and he even said, if just one person mm-hmm. gets something from me sharing my story today then it's then it's worthwhile and his co-host Efi is such a rad person I can't wait I'm gonna like do a road trip and go meet them in Winnipeg one day but the timing of it and I believe timing is is good I think it's uh, something that we need to pay more attention to the alignment of things him telling a story basically gave me that last little boost of like, okay, I, I really got to do this. And he was such an inspiration for me by sharing his story. Um, but about a month prior to the event, um, 
through just a random meeting, uh, this very strange energy that I can only describe as evil entered my body. And for four days, I, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf like falls into the pit after that monster. Okay, we're huge Lord of the Rings fans. Okay, awesome. Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. So Gandalf, uh, the gray, right? Yeah. Yeah. Falls in and Mm -hmm. battles that demon Mm -hmm. for a long time. Tolkien's a whole lot smarter than people give him credit for on so many levels. Oh my goodness. For sure. I'm so grateful for him too for writing what he wrote. Um, I basically spent four days fighting some voices that were telling me this is this is too big, too scary, too evil, too much. You can't do this. You can't handle it. But then it actually turned into like really scary energy. And there was a moment when I was on my driveway on the third day. And for a moment, I just said, this internal voice says, or external, it felt very, it felt like I was possessed. I know, though I don't use those words lightly, and I'm Mm -hmm. not talking like, I don't actually believe in a devil, I just think evil energy. For sure. The opposite of what I felt like I was really trying to do. So it was like this fight, I was like fighting, no, I have to, I have to do this, but what if someone gets triggered and goes and kills themselves? What if I totally mess this up? What if someone that's a speaker has a mental breakdown on stage and gets hospitalized? What if, what if? At one point, my husband said, what if someone doesn't commit suicide because of your event? And that was such a like light for me through the process. I, I held that really dear. These four days were crazy. My husband said, maybe, I don't know, like he, he grew up with, with the Bible and all that. He said, maybe you need to cast it out, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I had this vision of like, I need to go to, to, to the top of a mountain and I need to like take my staff like Gandalf and mm-hmm. say, you shall not pass, right? Like mm-hmm. that actually was, oh, I can just feel that right now in this room. Like mm-hmm. it was this huge battle I had to fight. But on the third day, there was this moment where um, it was like everything stopped. And it was like underwater, darkness, silence. And I said, it sounded like my voice. Okay, Emily, maybe you should just kill yourself. And then I went, okay because I'm here now and I've been through all these life experiences and I and I've done all this like inner work and I've faced all this stuff maybe my kids can too so they'll be okay they'll be okay they'll understand one day this is the only way this is your this is how to get away from this evil this is the only solution that's what I got to And then it was like, boom, no, actually, you just needed to see that. Hmm. You just needed to see that. And it was like, that was my, 
like sword in the the belly of this beast mm. that was my like no no and the word no is in the word knowing so it was like i know this is not the way but part of me felt like i needed to be shown that to understand the stakes what this this event could be if i didn't take the right precautions and do the right work for the people involved the people watching and myself mm. so i went to bed with a plan i'm going to go up to the mountain tomorrow and i'm going to cast this thing out for final forever for done this is it and i got to the bottom of the mountain at about nine o'clock and it was raining this is the fourth day not to be superstitious, but four is also a completeness in itself, right? Four directions. Mm -hmm. And as I got to the bottom of the mountain, um, I I noticed the um, there was a chickadee there right at the beginning of the path. And anytime you go hiking anywhere and you're the first person there's cobwebs right there's spider webs not cobwebs spider webs and they still have dew on them mm -hmm. and this is august something so a month a few weeks before the connection project and i realize i i'm also in this place of fear because i have no idea what i'm going to say on stage i've got i spent so much time planning it and doing all these things that i don't know what i'm doing so i'm like oh my god i'm gonna totally f this up and it's going to be horrible. So I'm like, I need to say what I'm going to say on stage right now as I climb the mountain. And so it was very interesting. So there's these spider webs with the, with the dew and they're, they're coming, like they're going on my face and I'm having to pull them away. Like I'm having to clear a path, a new path that's never been forged before, I guess. And this little chicken, sorry, this little chickadee is, is there and it's like chirping away and it's hopping 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 branch to branch to branch and so i start talking to the chickadee and it follows me up the whole darn mountain which and mountain was this again this is Hlewino, the okay. the uh just recently renamed okay <laughs> never didn't have its name but Hlewino yeah. is um mount newton oh, okay. john dean park area okay uh, which has lots of cultural significance and and mm. relevance to my my children and my husband and his family and myself too mm. um it has a special connection to the flood story of the Huisanich people and um i didn't choose that mountain for no reason i knew these things yeah. going into it and so i spoke to this chickadee i i cleared these spider webs i also embraced the the dew on on the webs i let it just be on my body you know mm -hmm. and i just kept saying no matter how dark no matter how scary thank you chickadee for being here with me today i i see you i love you i'm so grateful for you being here to assist me and these spider webs it feels like we can't get clear we can't see the truth of what our life is because we've been so taken over by this darkness and I promise you there is light and there is hope there is so much hope and I can tell you because I've been there and I know what this looks like 
And every one of you has the ability to get through. And I'm just talking and I don't even know who I'm talking to anymore. And I'm kind of like way out there. I, I feel the energy of it now, but I just knew that I had to keep speaking. It's like when you're doing a free write, you just got to go with what's coming through. Right. So I go up to the top of the mountain, a chickadee followed me the whole way. And there was still fear there, but I was there to meet it. And I noticed that there was like this absence of something all of a sudden. And it was like, as I progressed up the mountain, the power of this evil was lessening the further I went and the more I spoke these words. So I, I do believe there's a lot of power in language too. And I just kept going with it and, and trusting that this chickadee like had my back and, and, and everything was good and that I was okay. And I got to the top and what I thought would be like a, you know, a, you shall not pass screaming yeah. from the top of my lungs, like visceral, uh, you know, gut wrenching scream. It just needed to be a whisper when I got there. And I just said, it's done. It's over. You're gone. I, it's not, I don't want you anymore. This is over. It's done. We're good. <laughs> and that day was a reconnection for me to my, my true self, because I got to witness myself knowing what needed to be done to take care of myself and the situation going forward. And, uh, it was really empowering but I know it wasn't actually just about me. Like, I feel like there was good done through me in that work. Honestly, that was a beautiful story. It almost felt m mythical. Mm. Um, in fact, it made me think of many, many of those kind of um, legendary stories. It's a beautiful story. Thank you for, for sharing that. One question I had was the voice that you felt. Um, it reminded me of the voices earlier. That were saying like you know jump in front of that bus was it that same voice or was it a new no, voice it was a completely new voice and it totally was new. Okay. Uh, it felt like a collection of malevolence mm -hmm. and darkness that was fighting to stay alive mm -hmm. in the face of the light of what this project was about to do. Something that you wrote in a, a blog that I read mm -hmm. was that real human connection possesses healing properties. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just speak to that as, as we begin to wrap up. But if, if someone who's listening is, has been struggling or, or feels like they there's work to be done for them much as there is for all of us but if you could tell us how you came to that realization about human connection and what are some ways of beginning to use that to, to mend trauma or or challenges mm. that's a really good question um so the connection piece for me and why I use that word is if you take notice, maybe spend one day trying this out, 
take notice of what shows up in your life and try to reserve judgment on those things. And I'm talking the natural world, thoughts, feelings, urges. Um, I actually think there's a whole other way that we can be existing on a deeper level. And that is to pay attention to the external world in relation to what we decide we want to spend time either interpreting from it or uh, acting upon. You ever have that feeling, oh, I should call Mm so-and-so. I always do that now, no matter what, because I have no idea why. And I go with it. And that's how I've been living my life since doing this project. So the inclination to just shove down that thought or feeling or instinct quickly and not giving it any of your energy and focus is, I think, um, perhaps detrimental to the opportunities that are coming for you. You know, sometimes you go to the movie theater and watch a movie and there'll be some moment in it and you're like, oh, I so needed that. And it can be completely unrelated to why you went to the movie or, or, or maybe someone you ran into in that theater, but it's actually actively making those connections that are appearing for you in your life and letting them in and making a habit of instead of falling into patterns of just uh, being a a bystander in your life to playing like if we're talking movies now a lead role like actually step into that you have a have a, a job to do in your role in this life and start looking at areas in which um, you feel pulled towards just go investigate it and you might find real beauty in that and it does take practice to connect it does even for me I absolutely it's hard sometimes I have to consciously go uh, stop doing the dishes right now because right now is a really great opportunity to go and get down on the floor and 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 play Pokemon or, or Scrabble or cards or just you know lie down with the puppy or read a book or or um don't shy away from this person you've just run into the grocery store go actually see what what it is that's going on in their life today and it 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 takes practice well and for me i think it would have to be it may not be the most efficient thing to do right now it may not be most practical thing Mm -hmm. right but you need to be open and do it yeah that's that's one of one of the things i hear you saying because because it's easy to stop it you hear it and you're like well i mean that's probably just you know you say something like that well it's probably just not you know, that's not that's not yeah. practical oh it, life doesn't work that way what what because because i follow this something's gonna happen it, it would be easy to do that but when you live your life as an openness as one of our past guests robin said and you're open to what could mm-hmm. be and what mm-hmm. is um things can turn around and transformation can happen. That's what I hear you saying. And finding a way to hear, to listen to that intuition, that inner voice, Mm -hmm. that wisdom and truth that is, is speaking to you in those moments rather than just being like, wow, no, that's probably, now's probably not the right time or they don't want to hear from me anyways or or whatever Mm -hmm. that other chatter might spring up with. Yeah. And, when those connections show up to also uh, just 
simply go into like allowing and receiving. And when someone is, one thing I've learned about receiving is people paying compliments or gifting you with opportunities, like something like this, just it's a gift for them just as much as it is. So you're actually helping people when you, you know, I'm going to have a cookie on my way out that yeah. your mom made, right? You need like to. They're yeah. so good. the fact that love was put into that. And yeah. that's a, that's part of this whole gig, right? Being in her home, being thankful for the, the beautiful way she surrounds herself um, with her life experience too. And it's just like lean into life. Mm-hmm. For me, I used to say this thing and my husband would point it out and I'm grateful that he did. I would always, when I was in my big depression years, it was like, I just want to be happy. I just want to be a good person. And now it's, I, it's just a change in thought, actually. I am a good person and I am happiness. And so the world matches that, right? Regardless of what's in the past, right? There's all those traumas. Yeah, take care of them. Make those connections. Figure out where there's broken uh, lines mm-hmm. in your life and and have the courage and ask for help. And sometimes even declaring what you need the most will call the people that you need the most to help you work through that. And, and you'll find support in the most incredible places, right? As soon as I decided to do this, all this amazing circumstance and people and situations showed up for me so I am oh so 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 happy and I love my life I Mm -hmm. love my life and I'm so glad I didn't listen to those voices and I'm so glad that we can be okay that the voices actually exist and that's part of like loving that there is the darkness um well and and that was going to be exactly where I thought we could potentially end uh, because we are in a world where there is darkness just as much as there is light we wouldn't have one without the other and as you look back and as we kind of reflect on on what you've shared and and I'm so thankful that that you brought us into that in those dark times without those you wouldn't have you wouldn't be where you are now and you wouldn't have been able to create what you have done and, and impacted others in the way that you have so I'm curious how gratitude shows up in keeping with all of those dark times and and the struggles that you've been through Mm. gratitude has just this i actually don't even know if i answered your question about the healing properties of connection but i do believe healing and and gratitude has healing just as much as connection um being thankful for my life allows me to see the beauty of it I guess I'm feeling a ton of like it feels like grief but it's like also like the person who didn't feel gratitude is like dying in that second that just happened a few Mm. seconds ago right it's like this constant Mm -hmm. shedding every time I cry I get excited because it's an opportunity to have gratitude for that old version of myself that just left and I'm now in the in the next 
bit. Gratitude is important for so many reasons. And the way I practice it for me is I will speak it or sometimes text it if that's what I need to do, but I will speak it. I will phone someone and I'll actually say the words. Mm -hmm. Again, power and language. Um, mm -hmm. Things that are spoken have the ability to heal people, even just witnessing it, right? So um, I was feeling an overwhelm of like, gratitude for the two of you um, for the space that's happening here today and the podcasts that I listened to previous were just unreal and they actually opened me up to be able to do what I did today I got lots of little bits of wisdom and and insight into being okay with being vulnerable today and um uh there's there's just magic in that and um yeah that thank you no thank you um I, i'm quite sure this is the least i've spoken in a podcast <laughs> because i was just so taken in by the story like i have no idea how much time has passed no, um, no, I, 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 I i was connecting on on a, such a deep level with so many of the things you were saying and i was found myself lost in my own thoughts at some points and then oh yeah I gotta remember to listen again because it was just I was going through my own journey as you were sharing yours and it's this is exactly what we've always hoped for this kind of conversation and and so I so thank you for for I mean I look forward to listening to it again and for the first time in many ways mm. well that's the episode thanks so much for tuning in everyone we appreciate your time and attention if we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm -hmm, for sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.